It's going to be an otherworldly experience. That's what I think. One filled with awe and fear and bright light and an everlasting memory. What is that? It's traveling the Orsund Bridge. You may not have heard of it. I hadn't either until recently, but I see some Scandinavians smiling over here. That is uh, a new bridge since 2000, the year 2000, from Malmö, Sweden, to Copenhagen, Denmark. And uh, we will probably be, my friend and I, passing over this bridge this summer. It was built after 100 years of dreaming in the year 2000, as I said, and Patty and I will finish our two-week uh, tour through Norway and Sweden with this hair-raising experience in my mind. It spans, you see, five miles over the water with nothing around but water, water, water. There's a car lane on the upper level and a tunnel for a train that runs on the lower level. Passengers can arrive from uh, one shore to the other in 35 minutes, if all goes well, from one country to another. The wobbly knee part for me is there's nothing in sight anywhere but water and the horizon for all those miles. I don't know where you get the tow truck to come or the train repair person to come, but I'm going to go in faith uh, because we're going to venture out trusting that the engineers were brilliant and the construction was flawless as we journey from one shore to the other. Well, it kind of reminded me um, about the the bridge we have today as well in our gospel story. Uh, Such an expansive journey that Jesus is about to make. First, up the mountaintop with his disciples. Um, And it is indeed an experience that is no earthly experience that could match it. It is no, uh, there's no match for the awe and the fear and the brilliant light and also the everlasting memory of being present at the transfiguration for his disciples. We call this mind-blowing event actually the bridge, the bridge, the expansive bridge between uh, Epiphany, the culmination of our Epiphany season, and the beginning of our Lenten season in the wilderness with Jesus wandering and the people uh, in Exodus reminiscently wandering for 40 years as they waited for the promised land. And so uh, the transfiguration is an important day to kind of set us up, to, to uh, charge our batteries, you might say, and give us enough light to sustain the dark days of temptation in the wilderness with Satan and the devil as Jesus goes off for those, those moments. Mark's story <clears throat> begins by referencing the last events in the gospel before this transfiguration, because our reading today begins with these words. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And so you think, well, unless you're a mind reader, you think, what happened six days ago? Well, six days ago, it was just in the the middle of Mark's gospel in chapter 8. Mark has 16 chapters, and right in the middle of the whole story, Jesus declares that he is going to have to uh, go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and he's going to be crucified and die and rise again. And to which Peter says, no way, not you, Lord, that can't happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It is exactly what God has in store for me. So six days later, Jesus has made the announcement that his future is destined for one of 
uh, pain, suffering, and death. Not something that a disciple wants to hear from the star that they are following uh, in the days ahead. And so this is the, the bridge, this beautiful epiphany of Christ. It's like the wattage has gone up each week from the wise men when they first came back at the beginning of epiphany. They followed the star. And the star was so bright that it brought them to the chosen one, to the, uh, to the baby Jesus, to worship him. And then each week in Epiphany, it seems like we turn up the amps a little higher, you know, from 45-degree bulb, 60, 75, 150, 200, and 300. And here we are whoosh, at the highest level of intensity. And so six days ago, the disciples were perplexed. So Jesus says, come with me. I want to help you understand something. Peter objected, but now he's going to see the one who will bring in the kingdom of God in full force. So up on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. I'm not even going to try to explain it. There is no explanation. Sometimes we feeble humans have to settle for a mystery that we just know is something beyond our reach to understand. But Peter and the boys, uh, James and John, were confused. uh, But they know that now, with this event, I keep looking in the floodlights because if you were this side of the floods, I think that must be how the face of Jesus appeared. But this is the time when they say, okay, we believe you now that you are going to bring in the kingdom of God. They see God in full force. And Peter drinks in the supernatural display of light. And it's like a culmination for him of understanding, finally. Then Elijah and Moses appear. The all-time stars, the rock stars of Israel's past. Elijah being the greatest prophet of all time. Elijah, who is thought did not taste death. Remember the, uh, the chariots uh, come down the, from heaven and take him up into heaven and he, he disappears. That's from our, our reading in the Old Testament this morning. Elijah passes the cloak on to Elisha, his, his follower, and who will take the mantle on. And it, it is a story indeed that uh, is, is essential to understanding for the Jewish tradition, the passing of the mantle to Jesus now. He has the greatest prophet who never tasted death. He has Moses, the greatest lawgiver of all time, and the leader of the chosen people to the promised land. And now the promised land will be with everlasting life with God in the New Testament, and Christ will lead us there. So both of these rock stars appear, and they both struggle through their careers to keep people faithful, as you know, and to keep people hopeful against all odds of oppressive political systems, and of idolatrous religious temptations. New Testament scholar William Barclay explains this. When these two figures meet with Jesus, it meant the greatest lawgiver and the greatest prophet said to him, Go on! It meant that they saw in Jesus the consummation of all they had dreamed of in the past. It meant they saw in him all that history had longed for and hoped for and looked forward to. It was As if that moment Jesus was assured that he was on the right path because all of history had been leading up to the cross. Some commentators have even said that Jesus himself kind of had uh, a moment where he wanted to touch base with the leaders of the past to make sure that his interpretation was correct, that he was to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and die. It's an awesome decision to make. You do want to double-check that that is the word 
on the street that you should be doing. And obviously they say, go on, keep going, you're moving in the right direction. And then Barclay adds, now a cloud descends onto the mountain. And a cloud descends in the Old Testament many times when Moses got the Ten Commandments. The cloud descended over the top of the mountain. It's an image that God is coming down and God is present. And so to the Jews who were reading this, of course, who the disciples were, to uh, Peter, James, and John, the cloud descending is a symbol that God is present and now is spotlighting his Messiah, the Messiah in Christ. God's voice is then heard, as you know, saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And where have we heard that before? If I gave you a Sunday school quiz, I know you would know that it was at Jesus' baptism. Uh, Way back at the beginning uh, of Mark's gospel, Jesus is baptized almost by himself. Hardly anyone sees that the heavens open, the dove comes down, and a voice says, this is my beloved. Listen to him. And so from that solitary experience of Jesus getting God's blessing, we now go to a more corporate blessing with the disciples present, Moses and Elijah, and again the same message, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And like the great human that Peter is, he wants to hunker down, as you know well, and put up a tent, a dwelling place, for the prophets and for the disciples and everybody. This is so cool, he says, let's just like move into the neighborhood and stay right here. He wants to relish the afterglow of this brilliant moment. And we know that feeling many times. You've been to a concert, either a rock concert or a symphony concert. Maybe it was outside. Maybe it was a summer, a beautiful day. They played all your favorite songs. The crowd had been into it. And then at the end, there's maybe a crescendo. Uh, Everybody's singing and it stops. And you just want to stay there. You just want to bask in that moment. We all have those moments that you just want to last and last. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, have a, I got a, a, um, a text from Brian Jenkins, <laughs> which I don't usually do. He's down in uh, Puerto Rico or something in a, in a southern climate. I'm sure he's doing business. But he said to me, he, said to, he says in his text, uh, it's a picture of him hanging on a zip line, which our teenagers do on the retreat, the catechism retreat. He's on a zip line with his feet like this, and he looked, he's got his helmet, and he said it's like his first time that he's experienced, and he's been, he's soaring through the air, and the second picture shows him flying, and uh, I think he's put it out on YouTube if you need to see it. He's already got it out there, but I thought, now that is a memory that you want to just freeze, freeze frame when you're flying through that zip line in Puerto Rico, it's your first time, or when you go parasailing and you're up over that, my brother said he was just in Cancun, I don't know why I haven't thought of going south in these, in this weather, but... My brother went to Cancun, who's in his 70s now, and he did his parasailing up over the ocean. It must have been a lovely thing. Um, And I say, those are moments you just want to freeze frame. And Peter wants to freeze frame today uh, and just remember it. Why would you want to leave this uh, enraptured moment to go and do something else? But maybe you were at the Grand Canyon and you had that feeling, you know, looking out over the beautiful creation that God has. It's a silent moment where the wind is blowing and you see the different shades of the purples and the shade and the sun as it lights you up and you stand there and you know, now I know there is a God because who could have created this but such a beautiful creator as we know. And you soak it in because you know there's going to be times when it's not going to be so clear to you that God is real and God is truly um, caring for us all. 
the real world presses in on us so much, especially with the social media, we can't get away from it. Constantly reminding us. I have a little beeper from CNN on my phone that comes in and tells me all the tragedies, the killings in Denmark this week, the things that go on. It's just hard to escape uh, all that's going on. And then we have broken families, cancer diagnosis, bad news of car crashes with uh, respected journalists taken from us in a minute. Refugees fleeing daily from ISIS path of destruction. Our seas polluted with land masses of plastics. People can't afford the good health insurance we have. It's, it's easy to not stay on task. Waging a battle of hope and justice in our time is hard work. And yet people all around us, and maybe it's you today, are seeking a relationship or renewed relationship with Jesus Christ, with God, with some higher power that can tell you that you are important, that you are beautiful the way you are, that you have a good future, and that God will guide and direct you. And they are looking for us to be able to share that kind of good news. We need to have uh, something within us, a battery charged strong enough to last through the darkest of days. I love this song, What Do I Know of Holy? You've heard it many times. The band does it well. Usually Christy Evans sings it. But I think today of this holy moment of transfiguration, one which sometimes we just turn the page because it's so bizarre, we can't relate to it. But it's an experience of the holy that those disciples had. And I know that you have had it too. It doesn't have to be on a mountaintop with a separate experience. It can be in many ways. But this song is about a woman who's seeking a relationship with God, and she starts out, What do I know of holy? What do I know of you who spoke me into motion? Where have I even stood but the shore along your ocean? Are you fire? Are you fury? Are you sacred? Are you beautiful? I guess I thought I had you figured out. I knew all the stories, and I'd learned to talk about how you were mighty to save. Those were only empty words on my page. Then I caught a glimpse of who you might be, the slightest hint of you brought me down on my knees. But what do I know of holy? The transfiguration moment is such a mysterious revelation today for all of us. And yet it stands as a bold witness from God to say he takes delight and joy in this son of his. He takes delight in what is going to come ahead in some ways because it means he will be able to bring all of us back to him across the bridge from the shore of death to the shore of everlasting life, from the shore of separation to the shore of a faith relationship that lives and breathes. He is indeed delighted to save us, even though the journey involves suffering and heartache and pain. We, too, are asked to follow in such a pattern. When they go down the mountain, you know, the disciples are agreeing. They are going now down to follow him and follow him into the wilderness and the betrayal and the hardships of the day ahead. We have to be strong to survive it all. God gives us this transfiguration as the assurance he will not disappoint.
You may know C.S. Lewis as a great author, one who also struggled with his own faith, didn't believe for a long time, agnostic, and then had a faith moment, kind of an epiphany. And then he has a lot of force in this presentation he writes about the uh, transfiguration. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people often say about Christ. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic. On a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So let us go down the mountain, renewed and strengthened in faith. Amen.